Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Christopher H. Evans titled Do Everything, the biography of Francis Willard, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Evans is a professor of history of Christianity and Methodist studies at Boston University School of Theology. He is a leading scholar of the social gospel movement and has written numerous books and articles on American religion and the history of Christianity. His books include The Social Gospel in American Religion and The Kingdom is Always Coming, A Life of Walter Rauschenbusch, which received an award of merit from Christianity Today in 2005. Chris, welcome to the show. Jane, it's great to be here. Thank you. So this is the first biography of Francis Willard published in over 30 years. So what led you to So what led you to write about her? Well, Willard to me has always been a a fascinating figure. She was probably one of the most significant reformers of of the late 19th century. And she was an individual that just had enormous charisma in terms of being able to galvanize uh, women into a variety of different movements for social change. I think one of the things that really motivated me was, to be honest with you, the fact that not more people have pick and, p- picked up the opportunity to write about her. Uh, as you mentioned, the last uh, full-length biography of Frances Willard was published in 1986. And it's a very good book, but like a lot of scholarly figures, we we really know so much more about her. And in the context of particularly the interest that a lot of people have, rightfully so, in, in recovering the history of American women, uh, there's been a lot of work on women like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Ida B. Wells, to name just a few. But, but I think Willard 
remains a figure that that despite her popularity and her tremendous fame during her lifetime, uh, she and she still remains either misunderstood or or people just don't know about her. Um, yeah. Here was a woman that at one point in her life, uh, public schools in the United States had portraits of Frances Willard hanging in classrooms. And the fact that she has largely disappeared from from popular memory, I think certainly scholars have, there, there are a lot of good examples of scholars who have done work on Willard, but I just thought 30 years was too long to have a book. And it really seemed like, uh, given my interest as a scholar, I've written a lot, as you've mentioned, on the interconnection between religion and social reform in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. It just seemed like a good time uh, to to really try to bring this woman this woman's story uh, to public attention as well as to scholars. Do you have any thoughts about why she's been forgotten? Do you think it's just that you know she's a woman and sort of got written out of the kind of the narrative somehow along the way, or what are your thoughts on that? I I think there are a few things. I think part of it is that. A lot of Frances Willard's rhetoric, if we're if we're just simply talking about memorable language, uh, she from from the perspective of our ears today, she she sounds very much like a product of her generation and her historical time, and I think in some way it's easier for for people today to latch on to the stories of women. Well, like uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, two contemporaries of Willard, who were extremely radical for their time, and we but we remember them directly for the work that they did in terms of achieving uh, working for women's suffrage. So I think in some ways, Willard seems a little bit antiquated when you when you read some of her writings and and hear some of her words. She comes across, again, as someone who was very typical of her time. The other part of that, for, though, Jane, is I think some of the neglect of Willard revolves around the lack of understanding of the social issues she was most, most associated with, and that was the temperance prohibition issue. Uh, I think for many today, people see that issue uh, as a failed experiment with the the 18th Amendment, there are times I think the media tends to caricature a lot of women like Willard as I mean very moralistic uh, individuals that were mostly interested in trying to prevent other Americans from having a, a good time. So there's a very simplistic understanding of the temperance issue, and we forget that most social reformers of the 19th century, uh, Francis Willard, Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were all invested in some way in the, in the prohibition issue. Uh, and, and in many respects, when we, when we talk about prohibition, yes, there were concerns about the consequences of, of alcohol consumption, but it also ties into a lot of economic reasons. The, the, the temperance movement 
was was profoundly concerned with the uh, the way that oftentimes liquor interest in the country were were explore, exploiting cycles of poverty. You you had uh, at the time again cycles, uh, particularly in inner cities in the United States, where where workers were spending their money on alcohol and taking money out of the pockets of families. Uh, you had cycles, and this was something that Willard repeatedly emphasized, the way that alcohol abuse brought out cycles of domestic violence, of, of men beating women and children. So there's a whole social side to the temperance issue that, that Willard was engaged in that I think was probably more important than just simply the idea that drinking alcohol was intrinsically or morally bad. Uh, it was a disease. They, they, these were reformers that were very interested in trying to eradicate the, the social problems that were oftentimes associated with excessive drinking. Yeah. So the title of the book is Do Everything. So can you explain for us, what does the title mean? Oh, this was Francis Willard's motto, Jane. Uh, do part of, I think, the genius of Francis Willard as a reformer is that part of her motivation throughout her life was to try to find ways to get women involved in social causes of importance to them. Yes, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony had a huge impact. But the, the single issue focus that they put on, on suffrage oftentimes limited the number of women who participated in those organizations. And the do everything motto was basically Willard's way of saying that women needed to take up any and all causes of importance. So certainly temperance was, was a primary concern, but she also... Uh, encourage women if they were interested in causes, whether it was suffrage, whether it was uh, being involved in economic reform, whether it was having a say in terms of the textbooks that were going to be used in the nation's public schools, that that uh, women needed to do something about it. And I think in a lot of ways, Willard had nationally and inter international aspirations for her, her, her movement. And by the time she died in 1898, the WCTU was the largest women's organization of the world with over 200,000 women uh, and, and a network of WCTU chapters that were taking to developing in other countries. But, but the do everything motto was, was, at the end of the day, it was very local. The idea behind the Do Everything movement was that if women saw something in their community, they needed to work for it. So, yes, there were certain reform causes that probably Willard put more stock in than others. But the when you look at the WCTU as a women's organization, it had all of these departments, and so a lot of them, again, uh, I think the thing that tied them together, these were uh, these were revolved around issues that were important to women. Um, 
that. Yeah, could you so, go a little further with that? So, yeah. you know, kind of give us a little context of the identity of what womanhood was about in the 19th yes. century and yes. why this should why women should be the ones who do this work. Well, and and this is where I think again Willard's legacy gets clouded today because when you read her language from from the first uh, exposure to her, she spoke a very traditional idiom. It was a very typical nineteenth, uh, late nineteenth century language that talked about, in some way, the the domestic role of women, the the idea that women were caretakers of homes, that that that. Uh, at first glance, they weren't involved in the public sphere at all. But what Willard did is she took this very conservative language and she turned it on its head. Uh, one of the slogans of the WCTU was that women were the mothers of the nation. So because they had these qualities of nurture and care and empathy, greater a greater sense of empathy than men, uh, the WCTU argued, then they, they, they consequently they needed to be involved in issues that were going to be of great import to families. So, for example, one of the ways in which Willard pushed the WCTU into the issue of suffrage was not starting from the perspective of we need a suffrage amendment, which Willard believed in, you know, a constitutional amendment. But she took the perspective of saying to WCTU women, look at our communities are being flooded with these saloons. They are creating vice. They are creating cycles of poverty. They're having an adverse effect on the economy of, of, of local communities. We should have a say in terms of whether or not uh, saloons are licensed in these towns. So what Willard did very, I think, adroitly was campaign in a number of states for referendums that would allow women to vote on what was referred to as local option, allowing saloons in different towns and municipalities to uh, to have a say, having, having women have a say in whether or not these saloons were going to be licensed. So that was a very local measure. But then she went further and said, well, if we're going to be able to vote on saloons, so why not be have women on school boards? Uh, why not have women uh, become involved in politics and other matters related to community well-being? So you move from a very specific issue to a broader platform that says, well, we're voting on all of these other things. We should be involved in all matters of society. So you move from a very specific issue to the question of broader suffrage. Yeah, I think it's so important. And the I, I love talking to my students about this because my students come as young people, 20-year-olds, come to the idea of women's activism with the assumption that the women in the 19th century were like the women in the second wave of feminism in the 60s and the 70s. That's right. And That's it's a right. completely different sense of activism. Yep. That 
And the idea that women were purer and more moral than men. I had a really great conversation in my class a couple of months ago about it. And my students were like, oh, boo, you know, sexual double standard and women more moral than men and passionlessness and purity. They really bristled at that idea until I said, but no, this gave women a sense that they, they embraced the idea because it gave them a sense of authority in their homes that they took also out into their communities saying, you know, women are, women know better what children need. Women know better about cleaning up corruption and cleaning up politics. And so they used it as something that bolstered their activism in their communities. And so then they were like, oh, that's kind of different than what we, you know, it really confronted their assumptions about feminism. That's right. And it gave these women, and this goes to your point, Jane, it gave these women agency. It gave them a sense of authority that they they didn't need men to rely on for their political voice. They could do it. They could have a voice that needed to be heard and needed to be included in the conversation if America was ever to become a fully just society. And I think your point, too, is that that from a modern lens, it might be very hard to say that these women are feminist in a second wave feminist kind of way. Although I do think Willard, uh, particularly towards the end of her life, was was adapting what we would consider to be a much stronger feminist language, uh, particularly around the insistence of women's right to vote. But uh, the the approach of Willard, I think, again, was trying to find women where they were, and particularly from the standpoint of, of Willard's ability to get younger women involved for the first time in, in forms of political activism. And it was a very effective strategy in terms of, again, building support over time for not just a prohibition amendment, but the, the WCTU played, uh, uh, I think, a major role in in training leaders who went on to be suffrage activists, and and but also who were interested in a variety of other reforms related to economic justice, the support of the rights of labor, and so on. Yeah, and you could really argue that that Willard is a bigger thinker in a lot of ways than some of her some of her uh, contemporaries who were had very narrow issues that they were were only we're only going to work for suffrage we're only going to work for abolition we're only going to work for and she has a, a maybe a larger view of the work and her leadership in terms of building a movement and leading a grassroots movement, I think bigger. And I would even say, and I do say this in my classes when we talk about the importance of, of Willard and in women's history, that without Willard, you know, the suffrage amendment was languishing. And so the suffrage movement was languishing. It was not a large movement. So the I think her leadership and her skill as a strategist has been underappreciated. Yes. 
And I, I think there is a certain thing that we as historians always wrestle with when we talk about social movements, because I think on one hand, you could say that a single issue focus can be a very effective for a social movement to really achieve its ends. And you could say that that focus came into play later on uh, for with the suffrage, what became the 19th Amendment, and certainly with the 18th Amendment, with the with the Prohibition Amendment, where where you see uh, in the years leading up to ratification that single issue focus. I think the question that Willard raises for us, though, what is lost when you when you take when you narrow your focus to the point where you're you're only looking at an issue through one lens, and I think that was one of the things that Willard always challenge women, women on and men as well the that when you look at one social issue like temperance you also have to understand that related to uh, the rights of women you had to look at the issue from an economic lens you had to look at it from the from the standpoint of the broader social consequences uh, so so she was not do everything again for for Willard was a literal motto uh, and, and really a call to action that she hoped would be uh, a means by which women would be galvanized to to be uh, public uh, public uh, figures that would would not shy away from the challenges of modern society. And it was a remarkably effective strategy. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the religious history in this book. So you take a great deal of care discussing Willard's early life and her religious, her evolution as a young person. So how did religion shape her Willard into a leader? In, in a lot of respects, Willard is very typical of a number of white Protestant 19th century Americans. Uh, a lot of her story is very much interconnected with the, the, the religious and social consequences of what was occurring in in even before Willard was born in 1839, um, a very unique context, I think, in terms of how certain Protestant currents were were shaping and forging the 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 kind of thinking that would become uh, not just associated with Willard, but a lot of social reformers of that time. Uh, Willard was born in in upstate New York, just outside of Rochester, New York, at a time period that is oftentimes referred to as the Second Great Awakening by historians. It was a time of a lot of revivalism. It was it was from on a surface level. Again, you can see this as a as a time of a lot of religious enthusiasm. That was kind of the term that people would use, either positively or negatively to talk about the kind of emotionalism. But but I think we also need to say, too, that for a number of the religious leaders associated with that movement, there was a very strong social reform ethos. Uh, a, a person who was very influential on Willard's family was a very famous revivalist named Charles Finney, who was one of the early leaders of Oberlin College, uh, an institution noted uh, not only for becoming one of the first co-educational colleges in the United States, 
but very much a set center of the abolitionist movement. So Willard carried from her parents this idea that uh, very different in some ways from what we see with the Christian right today, the kind of conservatism uh, that it is oftentimes associated with, with, with more contemporary forms of, of this kind of evangelical Protestantism. But Willard grew up believing that if, if you, uh, if you pushed, uh, you, you fired up people with sort of this religious enthusiasm, it was going to lead to all kinds of social reform. So, for example, you were going to find ways to get rid of slavery. You were going to empower women with the right to vote. You were going to create different agencies that were going to eradicate poverty. All of these issues tended to be surrounded with this kind of religious enthusiasm of the time. Now, Willard, when she grew up, and she talked about this quite openly at different times of her life, uh, uh, she grew up a Methodist, which was the largest Protestant church at the time. She really wanted to be an ordained minister. But uh, her denomination, like most Protestant churches, would not ordain women. So that was another thing that she took to heart as a social issue. She would love to mention the fact to her critics uh, and supporters that two-thirds of, of the nation's churches are filled with women, that men tended to be a rarity. And yet, like other areas of society, most decisions uh, that were made from an ecclesiastical standpoint tended to be made by men uh, who who did not uh, wish to have the doors of inclusion open to women's voices. So I think that that background, uh, that in, in some respects we would probably call Willard today more of a liberal theologically. Uh, she was very interested in, in some of the larger theological debates that were going on, but she was also very interested in studying other religious voices. Uh, she was also very typical of a lot of late 19th century Americans and that she was very wrapped up in what we would probably call esoteric movements like spiritualism, uh, which was something that at times I think she tried to keep a secret from uh, the press. Uh, but it was, I think, very typical, uh, again, of a lot of 19th century women who oftentimes identified with more orthodox religious beliefs, but nevertheless love to dabble in speculation about uh, things like the afterlife and connection with dead family members from a very rational point of view. It's, it's quite fascinating, and I talk a lot about that in the book, that, that many of the women in the WCTU, while, while they oftentimes frowned on this, uh, they they also love to kind of dabble with this, but but very typical again of a lot of uh, white middle class women of of that time period. Mm. Yeah, and so you know I I always think of Robert Caro when he talks about writing about Lyndon Johnson. He said, "I just want to understand him." You yes. know, so how do we? I think that reading your book, it, it really gave me a, a, a fantastic view of understanding her from her from her religious origins and her 
her incredible intelligence, but also chafing against the limitations that she yes. had as a, a woman um, at that time and of her generation. Part of part of the story that I really wanted to tell in this book, and I hope it's one that comes across to the the readers. Willard's story, in large part, is a story of women's friendships, and and part of what I found very gripping from from the standpoint as a biographer when I was doing research, the the WCTU is a very public organization, and. And Willard was an extremely effective person in terms of cultivating attention. She that was the other gift that she had. She she wanted to use uh, the newspapers, the the media of the time to get the word out. She in our age today, Jane, she would have loved things like Instagram and Facebook, uh, and she probably would have been the ahead of the curve in terms of using that. But the other side of this is um, the the WCTU represented various circles of women's friendships that are so personal and and really, again, from, from the standpoint of, of looking at the way these, these women related to one another, they were like a family. There, I mean, certain women perhaps did not have the same types of connections to Willard. But what, when you look at Willard's leadership, there were all of these different concentric circles that surrounded her, and and the correspondence of these women, uh, the sense of friendship, the sense of of the way that their letters are filled with longing to be together as well as as conversations about larger social political issues religious issues of the day so i think one of the things that that really sustained the wctu as a movement as well as sustained willard and her leadership was the importance of willard's friendship uh, uh friendship networks and the story, as you know, the story of women's friendships in the in the late nineteenth century, is is so complex and multi layered, and and I hope in some way this book really go does a contributes to to further further understanding the the centrality of these 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 friendships, and the productivity of these friendships. You know that they're that they sustain these women. Emotionally, they sustain these women and have, a, in terms of a community of friendship, but also a community of work that they yes. get done. And the and it also there's some conflicts in there too. You know, yes. I thought it was really fascinating the section of the book about her rise to the leadership of the WCTU and all the elections that she lost along the way you know she loses and she loses the next year and then eventually she wins and um it's interesting the um her stamina and her commitment and also some of the you know some of the i don't want to say drama but uh, you know some of the politics and the conflicts with the with the women in the organizations that she was working in as well part of the part of the thing that 
at times can be very uh, unnerving, perhaps, in terms of reading Willard's story, is she was extremely political in terms of the way that she dealt with critics. And and she wanted to succeed. She was could be very, very unforgiving. And there are a lot of cases where she cut off women who she had been very close to because they it got to a point where they crossed her. The the irony of this, of course, is that if we were talking about uh, a man we would probably see some of these characteristics as admirable. Well, they knew how to get ahead. They knew and understand, stand, uh, stood power. When someone like Francis Willard exercised this this kind of authority, though, we can see it as as well. This is not being a good good person. And it is a little bit of an irony, though, and in some ways, again, Willard had to deal with this, uh, in particularly later in her career, that she would always talk about, uh, well, if women enter politics, we'll do it differently, we'll be kinder, we'll be more empathetic, we'll be more loving than men, we'll interject, again, these sort of, this 19th century mythology of women's purity into the political realm. And some commentators, women as well as men, who would go to WCTU conventions would write in 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 their articles that that these women were absolutely brutal. Uh, they fought, they argued, there was a lot of backroom fighting, uh, a lot of the same characteristics. So uh, but it does go, I think, again, Jane, to the double standard that that oftentimes scholars who who will study so-called great men will see these characteristics as very admirable, and while they were very adroit in their leadership, they they had these skills of kind of finding ways to get to the top. But when Willard does it uh, and employs a lot of the same means. Uh, it somehow becomes questionable because she's a woman. Yeah. She knew how to play the games of politics. She knew publicity. I was I was really uh, compelled by her. Uh, she ran a newspaper for the short time, right? She, yes, she did. Her brother's newspaper. And I thought, oh, well, how, what a great experience that ended up being because of her, how she was able to use those skills as a journalist and understanding public relations in her later life. And it, you're you're right though, you know, but how about the famous conflict you talk about? I just bring one example of the the conflict that she had with Ida B. Wells. Can you talk about that for a minute? Certainly, certainly. Well, and, and Willard, uh, just to kind of back up to what your comment, Jane, I think one of the things too that is, is a really admirable quality of Willard is that she had all of these different experiences as a young woman uh, that she built on. So she she had she traveled with a with a close friend for about two and a half years in in Europe in the Middle East. Uh, she was a school teacher. She was uh, an administrator in higher education, uh, being with the the first woman dean at Northwestern University in Evanston. Uh, so she learned 
from her experiences, and she always built on it. I think tying that into the episode with Ida B. Wells, Wells was an individual and part of what Ida B. Wells' great gift as, as an African-American woman is that she brought to the surface not only the realities of lynching in the American South, where as a journalist, she worked tirelessly to expose the kind of, uh, you know, not just the, dip, the realities of Jim Crow segregation, but the absolute horrors of lynching that were being ignored by a number of white Americans like Willard. Now, Willard, by the middle part of the 1890s, uh, was very much at a critical point where, for the first time, her leadership of the WCTU was being challenged. And in a lot of respects, part of what Willard always tried to project about the WCTU was that we can fight, we can argue, but at the end of the day, we're going to be one great big happy family. And as I've just talked about a little bit, that was not necessarily the reality because there were a lot of splits in the organization and a lot of disagreements. What What is very egregious, I think, about Frances Willard at this point is that Ida B. Wells was trying to enlist Willard and other influential white American leaders into the anti-lynching cause. Part of what Willard became very wrapped up with, which on, on one hand had a very positive impact, I think, but she was she was working in the context of post-Civil War America to try to build alliances with influential women in the American South. It's also very admirable that the WCTU was open to African-American women to join, but the other side of that is a lot of these African-American women were, were joining an organization that at a local level often segregated them into uh, black women's chapters. So Jim Crow became a reality in that organization. And Willard had made so many friends among whites, very influential and very powerful white Southern women who she was hoping she could forge a political alliance with uh, to create sort of this national block of, of Northern and Southern women that would be very supportive of issues like temperance and women's suffrage. The, the trouble was it, it overlooked and ignored oftentimes the experience of experiences of black women like Wells. So at a time when Willard was conducting uh, a very uh, uh, strong publicity campaign in England. She was doing a lot of touring and speaking in England. Wells really called Willard out by saying, you know, you have justified uh, in some ways or really dismissed these accounts of lynching that are going on in the South. And in a lot of respects, Willard's response was very cavalier. I, I think she treated Wells as as uh, you know, a young woman who was trying to uh, take the spotlight away from Willard, so to speak. I, I think there was there there was a personal aspect about Willard's 
uh, nature that just couldn't hear what Wells was trying to say to her. So what Willard did is she got very defensive. She said, well, you know, my parents were abolitionists. They were very, very involved in the anti-slavery movement. And then Willard talked about her friendships with people like Frederick Douglass and other, you know, very prominent African-American uh, figures of the time. So it was, it was, it was, it was making the issue about Wells. You know, Wells was being this insecure young woman who was making these baseless allegations, allegations, and it was a stain on Willard that I she never overcame. Um, I I think again, if if she had taken time to really listen to Wells, because I think on on one hand, Willard did have a very positive view towards African-American equality. She she was very enthusiastic about efforts to particularly build up African-American education uh, in the South. Uh, again, she had connections with prominent African-American leaders like Douglas and Booker T. Washington. But there's always again, this paternalism, this this idea that, again, well, with time, the problems of racism will disappear. And I think for all of the ways that Willard grew on a number of social issues and in some ways became very, very radical, uh, it, towards the end of her life, she was a strong believer in democratic socialism, very anti-monopoly and uh, big business she she always had a, a very uh, basic grasp of issues of race that I just don't think she grew on. She was never attuned to the realities of people like W.E.B. Du Bois who talked about the uh, uh, two Americas, a white America and a black America. A uh, very, very simplistic view. And on one hand, you could say, well, she's very typical of most white Americans, but yet you ha as a scholar, you have to deal honestly with those kind of omissions and the way that this represented, I think, a very, uh, very much a short-sighted aspect of Willard's do-everything philosophy. Right. You also handle Willard's sexuality, uh, very frankly, and I think with great sensitivity. So how did you decide to write about her sexuality and her relationships with women? This, the, Jane, this gets into the question that I wrestled with a lot in writing this book. And, and uh, being, being uh, a cisgendered white male, you, you kind of go through the, the whole thing of, should I be writing, can I really do justice to telling a woman's story? Uh, and doing it in a way that is going to be both relevant to the historical sources, but also, I think, touch on issues that are important to people in American society today. Um, many scholars, uh, you're very aware of this, there's a long uh, and, and very important history of scholarship that really has taken the angle, and I think justifiably so, of trying to decipher the language of women's friendship, which is so intimate and personal and at times quite sexual, uh, or what, what we would probably call there, there is an erotic edge to it. And I think there's no doubt that 
that part of Willard's struggle was in some respects about her sexuality. Uh, I think there are other dimensions to that, uh, though, that have to be considered. Willard was a woman who, for a long time, basically thought, well, the, the, the best thing I can do with my life is maybe I'll marry a minister and I can have a public role that way. That'll give me something to do. Uh, she rejected that option. Uh, but it is interesting, again, for, for a single woman who talked a lot about traditional families, and she, she wrote a lot about what she called a white life for two, the, the kind of co-equal uh, dimensions of the marriage covenant. And I love the fact that Willard always wrote about that when women took vows of marriage, she wanted to see the words obey struck out. So, you know, she said some wonderfully egalitarian things about, about marriage uh, for the time. But, but I do think, again, you know, when you look at Willard, uh, and a number of people have tried to kind of make sense of her and her relationships with women, I use the term, which again, I think a number of historians have, have, have identified as a very common trait. Uh, she's very much like uh, reformers, I think, like Jane Addams, uh, that we see, uh, you know, the next generation that were, were involved in, in these relationships with women that went beyond sort of the professional associations. They, you know, there was cohabitation. Uh, again, the question of how, whether or not women like Willard acted on on these relationships, I don't think we'll ever know. Uh, but but what makes it difficult, I think, is that I use this example in the book. At one point, uh, for example, Willard was just appalled by Oscar Wilde and the the situation that he was in with his libel uh, trial. And, and Willard actually uh, celebrated when Wilde was convicted in, and went to jail because she saw him as, as a degenerate. But, but by the same token, again, uh, by that point, Willard was uh, really in a partnership with a very famous uh, British reformer named Isabel Somerset. And, and again, you know, I think other scholars perhaps might draw some different conclusions and say, well, uh, well, they must have been lesbians or using the terminology of being queer uh, that we talk about in, in, in the 21st century. Uh, I, I understand why people would do that. And I kind of allude to the fact that, you know, that's probably a good way to get a handle on these weapons. But the other part of it is, I, I, you know, I don't think these women saw themselves as that way. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be the dimension that scholars are always going to be wrestling with uh, when, we, when we talk about these relationships. Again, there, there is a deep, a deep connection that, that brings these women together and, and there, there is a friendship that goes beyond, I think, the way that we would commonly look uh, at, at that 
term today. And I think the importance of, again, studying this time period is, is understanding that these friendships were not optional. They were essential to the way that these women functioned. And, and obviously, some of these friendships did result in these kind of partnerships. Oftentimes, again, the term that was you would probably use to describe Willard's relationship, particularly with Somerset, is a Boston marriage uh, or Wellesley marriage. Uh, they kind of nod to uh, these these women's colleges that oftentimes, again, had uh, char characterized by a lot of these single women who were connected in, in these domestic partnerships with with other with other women. So again, that's an open question. I mean, the the, the question of Willard, Willard's sexuality is is and and other women of that time is is going to be continued to debate. Uh, but but it, I do take the perspective. I think if you if you want to refer to Willard as queer, uh, I think that's acceptable. But I think you also have the caveat that that means something very different in the 1880s and 1890s than what it would mean in the in the 2020s. I totally agree. And I've had the same struggle with my writing and um, characterizing the book that I'm writing, the Geraldine Thompson's relationship with Miriam Van Waters um, and their, their letters, analyzing the sources and being fair to them um, in your in your assessment of them. You know, yes. uh, and I think that that's all that those of us who are writing biography want to be fair to who we're writing about and to, to do a good job in, in describing the sources. And I think you do a fantastic job of you don't hide from the issue in the book of with both issues of race and of sexuality. And I think it's it's really uh, well, very well done. And I, I've gone to school on your on your <laughs> Seth Will and as this history an important way of doing it. I agree with you completely. And as historians, Jane, I, again with women's voices, we always talk about this. The private is public. And 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 I think part of what I hope the reader will find with this book is just again the way that her private life, her engagement with other women and and the way that they talked about the kind of world that they wouldn't live to see achieve, but uh, a women where women would vote, and and uh, not only that, where you would have a woman president of the United States. But even as as we talked about before the interview, the act of riding a bicycle and learning to ride a bicycle at the age of fifty three was for Frances Willard a kind of political act. Yeah, my I was you know my students enjoy that story about the bicycle and Francis Willard. So, you know, what about that? You know, why does she decide that it's important for women to ride bicycles? This is something again that again I I think is is very much to the way that Francis Willard could engage a an issue with a sense of humor and whim, whimsy and seriousness. But one of the things that before the bicycle, one of Willard's big crusades was that she waged a lot of campaigns against women's dress of the time. Uh, she just said, it's ridiculous that women have to wear all these clothes. They're not healthy. And it prevents women from exercising. 
So Willard was very much on top of a lot of the fads of, of, of her time. And she became very enamored when two-wheeled bicycles really became very popular in the 1890s. She, in part, wanted to learn to ride a bicycle to improve her own health, but as a pushback to a lot of doctors who were basically saying, well, women shouldn't exercise. It's going to damage them physically and psychologically. So at the age of 53, Willard... Uh, she took on the task of riding a bicycle. And she wrote a marvelous little book called A Wheel Within a Wheel, where she uses the analogy of, of being a reformer, her own successes and failures. And she named her bicycle Gladys. She <laughs> talks about the fact that there were a lot of times where she fell on the bike but she just says, well, you've got to, you got to get up. you got to keep going, and, and eventually you're going to get it. So in a lot of respects, the, the bicycle, it was a wonderful, again, it was a wonderful publicity coup because there, there were a lot of times where she would talk to reporters uh, about, about the skill of riding a bicycle, and when she was in, uh, when she would travel, sometimes she would, she would ride her bike and, there, it was a wonderful publicity coup, but more importantly, it was very much a part of this constant message that she emphasizes. If I can do it, then young women can do this. So it, it, it really was, I think, a very effective means to encourage women uh, not just to learn to ride the bicycle, but her message was, if you can do this, you can master this, you can do anything. Yeah, I love her. The optimism of her personal philosophy of, I think the two things in my mind are the do everything and the bicycle. Those are like the two things for me that always um, characterize her full, her personal philosophy yes. and, yep. and her optimism, which is great. So one last question. So what's Willard's place in American history and why she why is she still relevant and important? She is relevant, Jane, because she is one of the most important men or women of the 19th century in terms of her influence on questions of women's rights, certainly in terms of the role that she played in in fostering the campaign for prohibition. Uh, but <clears throat> In terms of larger social reform causes more broadly, I think she is a prophetic voice that still speaks to us today, uh, both in terms of how far we've come in terms of many reform issues related to women, but how far we still have to go. She would have been heartbroken by the 2016 election. Uh, I think she at one point probably felt she would live long enough to see a woman elected president of the United States. Uh, many people, many contemporaries even said that if women received the right of, to vote in the 19th century, Willard probably would have been elected the first woman president. But I think Willard is important because she tells us a lot about the importance of, of women's voices, women's leadership, and also, again, reminds us that most great reformers, I think, don't 
necessarily live to see what they started to accomplish. Uh, to look at Francis Willard very closely, and I, I think I do this, I hope I do it in the book, is to see a very prophetic voice that is talking about questions related to, uh, you know, again, not just women's rights, but, but the question of what does it mean, uh, and I'll use Martin Luther King's words here, to be a society at peace with itself, where the voices of all of its citizens are included, where there is, an, there is a strong ethos that promotes equal rights uh, for all people in, in American society. And I think, again, that, that probably I'll make a bold assertion here, and uh, people may agree or disagree with me, I, I think that Willard was probably the most visionary person of her generation, and she was a dreamer. I say this at the end of my book. I, I think that it's easy to see in retrospect where Willard was maybe a little naive, that she was too optimistic about the prospect of change, but my God, particularly in this day and age, and looking at the kind of problems we face, we need dreamers. We need to have voices who, who can keep dreaming and keep imagining a better world than what we have now. And I think Frances Willard, through her life, through her writings, through her witness, is a marvelous example of that. Oh, that's wonderful. And what a great, that's a great way to end the interview. And, uh, I totally agree with you about her as a visionary. And uh, so we have to bring, encourage people to learn about her and, and to study her and to remember her. Thank you so much, Dr. Christopher H. Evans, for joining me on the show today and for a fascinating discussion of one of my women's history favorites, Frances Willard. I hope that you read this new book, Do Everything, the biography of Francis Willard, published by Oxford University Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecca. Keep reading.